Should I do Aaron Harvey? Aaron Stallworth? What yeah, what I? are you feeling today? What do you think? I just, you know, as I poured my whiskey, I certainly suddenly felt Aaron Harvey, but... <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to The Dot Project. I am Rhonda Elizabeth. And I am Aaron Stallworth. Or I am Aaron Harvey. Which sounds better? I don't know. Aaron Harvey Stallworth. Which you, you had in there originally. <laughs> your name. The DAP Project is a podcast that explores culture and politics through DAP, the Black man's most nuanced and telling gesture. We have conversations with Black men from all walks of life and ask them about one unifying element about being Black man, DAP. And as we emerge from a disastrous presidency, a period of racial reckoning, and a global pandemic that is ongoing, we're asking, what does it mean to come back better? How can we use our radical imagination to envision and create the world we deserve? Did you know that Robin D.G. Kelly wrote a book on the Black radical imagination? I just got it. I'm excited to read it. Sounds like a good book. We're talking with brothers who are doing the work. So what's on your mind this week from the news? My news this week relates to Maryland schools potentially taking a big step to dismantle the school to prison pipeline and create a nurturing learning environment for black and brown students. So I'd like to speak on that for a moment. Last week, the Maryland General Assembly began considering legislation that could discontinue the school resource officer program in its public schools. Almost one quarter of Maryland public schools utilize SROs, including Montgomery, Howard County, Prince George's County, and Baltimore County public schools. And $10 million is allocated annually to SROs. The legislation under consideration would redirect that money to mental health and wraparound services. And shout out to Montgomery County Councilmember Will Jawanda, who's been very vocal in support of removing SROs from schools. So why would this be a significant step towards creating equitable schools for black and brown students? So as reported in Bethesda Magazine last June, black students make up about 20% of Montgomery County public schools, but half of the arrests over a two year time period. And these statistics are aligned with national data. Multiple studies, including a 2018 joint report between the Advancement Project and the Alliance for Social Justice, I'm sorry, the Alliance for Educational Justice, show that school resource officers do not keep students safe, do not fall for the okey-doke with the resource part. In fact, they create a stressful school environment that some students say makes school feel like a jail and initiate involvement in the justice system for black and brown young people. In some school systems, you may be surprised to learn that SROs are law enforcement officers and they're authorized to carry firearms and arrest students. That's the starting point on the school to prison pipeline. And what's interesting to me about this debate is that I hear echoes of the same discussions we're having about policing in black and brown communities. In the face of these damaging statistics and a history of abuse, the proposed solutions still include reimagining the SRO function instead of removing it altogether. For example, the Minneapolis School Board severed its contract with the Minneapolis Police Department right after the public lynching of George Floyd, but then planned to hire public safety support specialists who have very similar job descriptions as the school resource officers. Now, the Maryland General Assembly has an opportunity to reject completely these methods of surveillance and control, center student voices and agency by removing law enforcement from school buildings and replace them with resources that genuinely help black and brown students feel seen, known and loved to quote an educator whom I respect deeply. So the receipts, the We Came to Learn a Call to Action for Police Free Schools report is available on the Advancement Project website and linked in the show notes of this episode. Color of Change at colorofchange.org runs campaigns to hold officers accountable for misconduct. So check them out. And lastly, stay up on the board resolutions in your local school district so that you too can advocate for the learning environments that we know our children deserve. So that's my news. What's your news? What are you thinking about this week? 
Oh, like the late, great Ray Charles, Georgia has been on my mind since October when the state helped to put President Biden and Vice President Harris in office. In addition to our two new senators being elected to represent this game-changing state, at least for the next two years. Shout out to Miss Stacey Abrams. Shout out. Amen. But my news is not about Georgia. Also on my mind is Virginia, the state just across the Potomac River that I frequently visit and briefly was a resident of over my 21 years of living here in the D.C. area. Virginia recently voted to abolish the death penalty. This is groundbreaking news. After reading Brian Stevenson's book and viewing the movie of the same name, Just Mercy, as well as longstanding personal beliefs against state-sanctioned killings, I'm very happy that Virginia is taking this step towards a more civil and just America. One holdup before Democratic Governor Ralph Northam can sign this bill into law is for lawmakers to work out a disagreement about whether people that are sentenced to life in prison instead of death could be eligible for eligible for parole, according to an NPR article. Another tidbit of news from Virginia that I was very happy to hear. The 100-year-old Jefferson Davis Highway, named after the leader of the army that lost the Civil War, soon to be renamed Emancipation Highway. I'm glad that 70 of the 98 members of the House of Delegates in Virginia voted for the name change. Long overdue. 100 years overdue to be exact. But as Sam Cook said, change gonna come. And soon, January 2022 to be exact, our GPS will be saying, please exit onto Emancipation Highway. Sounds so nice. That's my news. I'm pulling you in, young blood. You gotta listen to this, I'm gonna say real quick. Daddy, play that Let It Burn. <laughs> Yo, there's a whole body of knowledge and narrative of history that happened um, that my teachers didn't expose me to. Daddy, play that Let It Burn. <laughs> I'm pulling you in, young blood. You gotta listen to this, I'm gonna say real quick. Yo, there's a whole body of knowledge and narrative of history that happened um, that my teachers didn't expose me to. Nobody in the world ever wins success or a place of usefulness until he or she is absolutely wedded to a cause. Those are the words of DC educator of years past, Miss Nanny Helen Burroughs. Our guests are Myron Long and Brandon Johnson, co-founders of the Social Justice School. Myron and Brandon would bring pride to Nanny Burroughs as they bring life to her words. These two gentlemen are absolutely wedded to an impactful cause through their establishment and leadership of the Social Justice School in Northeast DC, where their mission is to catalyze an integrated community of middle school learners to be scholar activists who are designers of a more just world and receive an education that embraces and lives out a set of core beliefs about what it means to be human. What is powerful about the Social Justice School is that it restores dignity to an education system that has not only disappointed many groups of children, but predestined a difficult life. This is a conversation for parents, educators, students, anyone seeking to create community and pursue justice through education. Let's get into it. Founder of the Social Justice School, Myron, welcome to the DAP Project. Thank you all for having me. Thank you for the kind words. We really appreciate it. Absolutely. All facts, all facts. I got more to say, but we're going to move on for now. <laughs> but Myron, um, Ron. <laughs> you just said Myron. <laughs> Myron, we asked you to bring a friend along. Myron, we asked you to bring, bring a friend along for the your, uh, talk on the DAP project. Please introduce who you brought along with you. Awesome. This is my main man. Right-hand man, founding principal, Brandon Johnson, fellow father, fellow black man, brother from another, wouldn't be in this world without him, Brandon Johnson. Hey, hey, hey! Welcome to the Dad Project, Brandon. Man, thank y'all for having me. I appreciate it. Appreciate it. If you can think of the very first time you gave somebody Dad, that was like something that you always saw on the basketball court. Uh, you know, especially in like the neighborhood, uh, just watching guys like play together. Um, you know, when you first got to the court, you saw all your friends and everybody that you know. And, um, you know, so I feel like I probably started giving that from a young age. But uh, the time like it really started to mean something for me was about fifth 
even sixth grade, uh, because like the handshake started to become a little bit more complex. Like you got the basic, like what's good, like, you know, the typical, but then it got more complex depending on the, on like the circle or the friendships and then playing sports, uh, you know, me and my teammates, we all had different handshakes. So, uh, yeah, you know, I, it definitely goes back to the elementary, elementary days. Yeah. Same for me. Uh, didn't necessarily play a bunch of sports per se, but uh, I do remember um, like just coming to the neighborhood and seeing the older guys in my neighborhood and how they would give like, you know, the strength of the dap also meant something. So, you know, if they give you that like, ah, like pull you in, like you could tell it was like, I'm pulling you in young blood. You got to listen to this. I'm going to say real quick. Uh, and then, like Brandon said, you know, you got complex, you get, you know, bop, 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 we give them all of that. And it's funny, like, my daughter now knows that. Like, when I say dap, she, like, knows how to do it, right? Dap, dap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's like, it's funny how you teach that. It's like a cultural message that gets passed down from generation to generation. This uh, might give a little give us some bio on how y'all met but when you all first met do you recall if you gave dap or was it a handshake or a, a head nod or do you recall <laughs> <laughs> you, you know the funny part is like you, when you get into certain spaces and it's not with so many brothers in the room it's yeah. almost like eye contact like yeah you a good brother too yeah yeah i'm here for it and uh you know we were going around introducing ourselves talk, talking about how we approach the work and you know, it was a circle, so we didn't necessarily get to like physically dap up, but it's like our eyes was like, cool, cool. And you know, so like, hey, I'm Brandon, hey, I'm Myron. Uh, and it was like, cool, cool. And, and and then in that moment, I believe, I feel like we did dap each other. But at first I was like, did we, did we handshake, try to hit the formal Myron? I don't know. <laughs> I, don't no, I, think, I don't think we did the formal, but I do remember the locking eyes. And it was like, you know, like there's the head nod, but then there's like the recognition of like, Oh, another brother in the space. You know what I mean? It was like, oh yeah, oh yeah. Uh, so I, I do remember that we were down at uh at the City Bridge office. How long ago was this? That was 2015, maybe 16. Yeah, yeah, about 2015, 16. Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy, and you became tight ever since. So in the last five years. Listen, we, uh, man, we've done so much life together in these last yeah. couple of years. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's the funny part is the intimacy, what happens when you, you like build something together and then like naturally how life will just happen and, and you yep. connected because you're doing the work, but also because you're living uh, through the work. So, uh, you know, we, we experience a lot of like hard things together, but also a lot of joyful things together. You know, we always laugh, but, you know, I think he, he saw my second child born I saw both of his kids born, you know, it's just, it's just a lot. We've been through a whole, whole bunch of things together. Are there any men uh, from the neighborhood or from just life that you recall uh, who gave you just a memorable dap or just like, when you, when you think of dap, you think of these, this gentleman, whether it be an elder, whether it be a friend, anybody come to mind? So I, I have two. So I think the first one is definitely gonna have to be my father. Uh, you know, my, my father, uh, you know, wasn't a super hugger. Um, you know, we, we were close, uh, but it was real, like it was more of a formal relationship. And then I think when I was 12 or 13, um, I was coming home and I, and I said something and, and we were just having a conversation. It was really kind of a dense conversation. And I got out the car and he just, I mean, it was like the, and it was a hard, like, you know, he had strong hands. And I, I remember like in my mind, I was thinking about like the strength it was like all of the wisdom and the strength and the power that he had in that moment was transferred for me. And he like, he just like dapped me. And then like, he held it and he just looked at me and then he just like, he just did like this. And I, I never really like understood it. Um, but it was that moment of just like, uh, I felt like an infinite connection to him. Um, that, that moment I never forget, I'll never forget. Um, it was like, we had a sub conversation even though we didn't say anything to each other. Um, and it was just a powerful moment. And then the second one was, uh, there was this guy, there was this dude in my neighborhood and like everybody kind of wanted to be like him. He was like a really good uh, athlete and, um, you know, everybody just kind of looked up to him and, um, you know, we're on the court doing our thing and I'm playing and had, you know, played, played pretty good pickup ball at the end of the game. Like, you know, he, he gave me a little like slap on the chest and then he got me up. He said, good. He's like, man, good play, young blood. 
Good play, young blood. Nothing like hearing that from the older dudes on the basketball court. Myron, what comes to mind for you? I remember when some of my students started to teach me that that they would use in their own neighborhood. And that just really uh, made me honored because they were letting me into a part of their language and their lifestyle that, you know, they didn't have to, but they felt that that connection and that, and, and it lasted for generations. So I saw these students, I had them in seventh grade, and then even when they were in high school, it was like the same gap of all the way up until they graduated from high school. Um, so that was also a beautiful, a beautiful thing. So Myron in DC, how did DAP show up in the different neighborhoods? Yeah, so, you know, um, I grew up uptown and um, went to Coolidge for um, high school. And so, you know, growing up, growing up uptown, you know, us uptown guys, we always thought we had to be like extra with it. So, you know, we were the kind of guys you had to have like your your madness shirt with your shoes to match. Madness is this old like fashion icon in DC. And so our dad used to be real like complicated, you know, because we just thought we had to be like extra, extra fly back in the day. And it used to be interesting to see how like the uptown dap was different from like the southeast dap and the southwest and the northeast. Um, and just all variations that really like to us also like align to like the clothes they wore and the music that they listened to in a different band. So, you know, you could tell that like folks from like Southeast over Essence and Junkyard, it was a little like a little harder, a little harder that, you know, to be in uptown listening to the backyard. It was a little, right, a little rough at all, you know, that, you know, he's like, no, I'm not trying to find, just give me some that, you know. <laughs> right, it's like, yeah. <laughs> Like, it's not that deep, you know? It's not, it's not that deep. Right, right, like, what's right. Up, young right, right. Whoa. I was like, no, he's like, hitting my chest a little too hard, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so that's what it was like for me growing up in D.C. So that's that on that in D.C. Brandon, what was happening in Bowie and Silver Spring? Oh, so first off, like, you know, Bowie had its race issues too. Uh, it was still predominantly black, but it definitely had white folks. But black folks mainly hung out with black folks and white folks hung out with white folks. It was still very segregated. And then like when I got to the age where I was really like more aware of like race and like just culture uh, and transition to Silver Spring, um, it was just different, right? Like I I had, uh, when I came to my new my new neighborhood, like the first, the first friend I actually made was like a white dude. Um, and you know, just, it was different. I was like, you know, I don't really, I don't really do this, but, uh, you know, he was real cool. Uh, you know, his family was real cool. And, and, uh, and I used to call him like my white black, like my white black friend. I was like, Oh, he, like, why he did we black, do that back in the black. day? You, like, you everybody has one of those. You'd be like, he kind of, you know, I don't know how you can kind of be black, but that's, you know, uh, <laughs> so, so that was different. But then the, but like, I, I, like the cool part was like, I started to be exposed to like cultures outside of my own. So like, even at my middle school, I mean, I went to school with white kids and Asian kids and Indian kids and like black kids. And like, uh, even though we found ourselves kind of like going back to like our own groups, just the ability to be able to be in class and to interact and engage with like people that were different um, was interesting. And, you know, at times it was a challenge because um, like, I, I'll never forget it, like middle school. So so I, I, I struggled in middle school just to to really like, I was struggling to find myself academically, but also like socially. And like, I, it wasn't that I was a corny, but like, I just was trying to figure it out. Like, I didn't understand what it meant to come into your own. And, um, you know, it, it just was a, it was a really hard time because I, I like my white friend that I'm speaking about, um, it was at that moment that I saw what it was like to have like access and what it was like to be heard. Um, at, you know, he had similar issues that I did, but, you know, he, he had a skin tone that was more receptive to being heard and being received. And so, whereas I got tracked to go to like certain classes, he had the same issues, but was able to avoid those tracks because, you know, he just had family that could advocate in ways that, it, you know, it's not that mine couldn't, but just they weren't received in the same way. So, you know, it was interesting. It was, it was, I definitely appreciate it because there's no place that I feel like I don't fit in. Uh, it took me a minute to like, adjust, like DC is its own culture. And it took me a minute to say like, all right, I, I, I could do this too. But uh, you know, yeah, yeah, that's what it was like. Yeah, that's what's up.
Your beliefs about education and the potential of schooling took root when you were students across a variety of school settings, public school, Catholic, Montessori. Tell us about a pivotal experience that prompted you to think critically about the education system and your place in it. So I had this one teacher, he was like a history teacher, Mr. Williams. Um, and he was like the only teacher who gave me my first introduction into um, kind of like a critical, I wouldn't say critical race theory, but just more like of a opportunity to like reread history. And I remember, um, you know, he had this assignment and he was like, you know, what do you think is going to happen uh, when Columbus made sure with the Taino people? And I put like, yeah, it's going to be like exploitation and plunder and rape and, you know, imposing of Christianity. And I remember him saying like, exactly, like A plus. And I was like, wait, what? Like, and, but every other narrative before that was just more about like, you know, this traditional narrative of history. And so I was wondering like, wait, why am I getting this? Like, literally, I think this was like 11th grade. And I was like, I had, you know, three years of experience of opportunities to engage in like a critical history and that didn't happen. And so I think I left high school being like, okay, I, I, I want more of that. And I remember going to Morgan State and having the opportunity to engage in like critical race theory, critical gender theory. Um, and I felt like betrayed by my high school teachers. I'm like, yo, there's a whole body of knowledge and narrative of history that happened um, that my teachers didn't expose me to despite going to, you know, a more than predominantly black high school at the time. Um, and just wanted to think about like why that was and if there was any way to, 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 to rethink that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. In my earlier years, ninth and 10th grade was a lot about, you know, academics with me was an exchange. You know, I, I come in, I show up, you know, it was very formal. I do these things, I get this grade. Um, I feel like uh, my first two years was really symbolic of like, this notion of education is something that's being done to me and not something that I am like learning to grapple with so that I can grow and develop in my thinking and my being um, in my seeing of the world. And uh, that was like slightly radically transformed when I went to the independent school. So, you know, at DeMatha, formerly known for like sports and, and, and those things, um, but the academics were good as well. Um, but this Montessori high school I went to you know, my graduating class was 22 people. Um, I had classes of eight to 10 people and all of the learning that we did was more about the application of the information as opposed to like just the consumption of it. And so, you know, I'll never forget, uh, I think it was my 12th grade year. Um, one of my, uh, I think it was my humanities teacher asked me to do this pro pro uh, project, you know, so we had to go and we had to look at a school's like policies, like all across the board, all of their policies. And we had to rewrite it in a way which we thought it would be like equitable and fair for all people. Like, so we had to like examine these policies and talk about how they might be like unjust or not fair to certain groups of people or just like where certain loopholes are. And we had to rewrite it and then present it to the, like present it. And that was the first time like, like the light went off and I was like, hmm, I can actually get with this because it was like, not just me being able to take consume information and tell somebody that I understood it, but it was like, I actually want you to take what we're doing in class apply it and with a critical lens and then be able to tell me that you understand it through like your articulation of like this new policy or belief that you now have and you know and, and that was like kind of revolutionary me revolutionary for me uh, i'll still say that like that that didn't necessarily inspire me to like want to go on to be an educator or to be part of education but it did start to uh shift my mindset and and forced me to radically rethink about what education could and, and should look like. And again, being, I was one of like, uh, my graduating class had maybe like two black guys in it. Um, other dudes from DC. Uh, and I, I was just like, man, more people need this, you know? And even in, even in Silver Spring, which is not necessarily known as, it's, it's a good school district. Like I still didn't get that type of education being in what was considered a good school district. So yeah, that, that was my, my early uh, awakening to the idea of what education could be. 
We hear that high school awakened you to what education could be and should be, especially for Black people and other historically marginalized groups. As you transition to college, both of you continue to study Black history as a path towards a liberated Black future. What questions were you seeking to answer? Yeah, that's a great, that's a great question. Um, I think for me, I was um, really obsessed with this notion of like Black existentialism and trying to understand um, what that actually mean in the context of like freedom and responsibility. So I took hold to um, a lot of Frank's Fanon work, who was a psychologist from um, Algeria and you know, just this notion of like questioning what does existence actually mean through through race and through through gender, and just trying to figure out what that actually meant to be like a person of color in the world and examine like the world in and of itself um, as well. And I think I was also really trying to figure out for me like what was going to be the the best strategy for liberation. I think I was like falling into the trap of, um, you know, either it's like Malcolm or Martin until I remember reading a lot of um, Mandela's work around his strategy and philosophy and just saw that there was like a, a third way um, in a sense of um, a strategy for liberation. Um, so it was mostly about liberation and identity that I was trying to really figure out. It, it was all, it was um, in this um, Africana studies course um, and it was like a critical reading of um, Frederick Douglass's narrative. And we juxtaposed Frederick Douglass's narrative with this German philosopher, Hegel, um, who kind of like influenced Marx and what later became Marxism. And the conversation was like, you know, the question was like, what actually, what was the moment that Frederick Douglass became like liberated and free? And there was this huge debate that we were having because I think the traditional narrative is like, it's the moment when he learns how to read that he was like, I'll forever be free, right? And I think, me and some of the other students making this argument that like that was a moment but we saw like the fight with Kovi um which was one of his slave masters in um, in his narrative is actually the moment when he became free it wasn't just simply like the knowledge of how to read but it was actually like that knowledge plus that like act of physical resistance that led to him being liberated and being free Brandon, tell, tell us a little bit about your college journey at Fisk and the big questions that uh, that you were grappling with. You know, like any other college student, uh, I think the most fundamental question I found myself grappling with on a daily basis is who am I? And, and how am I gonna show up in this world? And what is my talent? What are my gifts? And how might I use those gifts in order to influence the world for the greater good? And um, so, you know, at Fisk, every WB Du Bois, of course, is 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 the legend and somebody that we like we talk about all the time, um, and so I think that I, I became obsessed with this notion of like understanding your voice and how to use writing, how to use speaking as a way to um, eloquently like articulate points so that like you can appeal to multiple people, um, and so I found myself like you. I actually I got obsessed with James Baldwin. Um, I, I actually feel like, uh, you know, he was just a prolific writer and I, I thought that he was really bold for taking the dramatic stances that he did at such an early time where it was like not a great moment to be black and it was not a great moment to be a gay man. Um, and he did un both of those unapologetically. And I, and I just was so uh, en enamored by the ways in which he could show up into spaces and unapologetically be himself and influence those spaces to think diff differently, um, to challenge the status quo. Um, and so, you know, I guess I just sum it up to say like, I, uh, yeah, I, I wanted to help Black America really discover uh, its own identity and its own notion of like its voice 
and how to go in spaces and, and really be heard in a way um, which they could really influence and make change. And so, I mean, I, I still find myself, I still tell my kid, my own kids, the kids that I, that I work with on a daily basis, um, you know, your, your voice is everything, you know, not to get spiritual or religious, but God gave us a voice. Um, he gave us the ability to be able to articulate our thoughts. And I just think there's so much power in words. Um, and uh, yeah, so I, my, my, my challenge is like, how do I get uh, literature? How do I get kids to find the words to express themselves uh, in a way which is eff effective uh, for them? It's fascinating to imagine Brandon in his Montessori High School thinking more Black people should be exposed to exercises that sharpen your analytical skills. And Myron in DC reconciling with the fact that he wasn't exposed to a body of knowledge that included critical race theory. In college, both examine Black history and Black identity, albeit from different theories and perspectives. In post-college, Myron and Brandon enter the education profession as teachers and instructional leaders, ultimately meeting in 2015 and opening the Social Justice School in the fall of 2020. The school description echoes their personal experiences and aspirations. At Social Justice School, students will engage in work that is meaningful, active, and rooted in problem solving that contributes to a better world. How do you teach that? Our philosophy and approach is that in order for students to uh, become empathetic with the world, um, they first have to build empathy with themselves. And so we start um, a lot of our work um, in our crew, which is our social and emotional framework, just really focusing on identity um, and having young people understand that identity is very complex um, and ultimately that they are the designers of their identity. I think that's where we first introduced this notion of like, what it, that this notion that I am a designer. Um, and so we have young people engage in, you know, the concept of intersectionality um, as early as fifth grade with identity maps and exploring that as well. Um, I think the second piece is, you know, if students can understand that the physical world is malleable, then they can also understand that the social world is malleable. And so at our school, our students go to um, this space called the Liberation Lab, where they get an opportunity to use technology like 3D printers and podcast stations, one, to learn how to like use those and have access to that technology. But it's really with the spirit of them seeing themselves as designers and having them have the opportunity to um, go out in the world and begin to test out uh, potential solutions. Um, and I would say thirdly, and I'll let you, Brandon, uh, pick up is just, you know, for us, it's about giving students like the tools and the time. And so Liberation Lab, like I mentioned, is not an elective. It's something that our students go to every single day and that they have from fifth to eighth grade because, you know, this social justice for us is also about designing, but it's about failing um, and getting back up um, and having the opportunity to support it to continue to do that work and really making sure they're like, we're not saying that every person has to be, um, you know, an organizer, everybody has to be like a writer for liberation. For us, we just want our young people to have like an ethos of social justice. And we tell them every day, like, no matter the profession that you're in, social justice means being empathetic and means like standing up for what's right um, and figuring out ways for you to give back into your community. And so, you know, you can be an organizer, you could be a musician, you can work for the Department of Health, you can work for DPW, regardless of what pathway you choose, we're not here to dictate that. We just really want you to really have a love for yourself and a love for a community. Um, and that's what it means to be a scholar activist at the end of the day. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. That's love, I, that was beautifully stated. That's it, that's it. I mean, honestly, like in order for kids to have empathy, they have to first be seen. Like I, I, I imagine most of, you, most of you all remember like when you were young, like you probably talked profusely in your house, like mom, dad, like, you know, always was talking, 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 but your parents were always listening, right? And so uh, unintentionally, like it gave this notion that my voice is important, my voice matters, and that my voice has value. And so, 
you know, we fundamentally believe that like school spaces have to represent that same understanding. And so like through the structure that we have called crew is like the first way in which like all of our kids are just seen. And I think that as they are seen, then they start to discover that not only are they seen, but they're also heard and that their voices matter. And then <clears throat> the second part is understanding and being able to have the language to speak to the things that they're experiencing. So we have this practice called naming and noticing. And, you know, I remember growing up, there was these moments of discomfort that I would feel and I couldn't quite find the words to describe what it is that I was experiencing. I was 15. I remember I, I was in this 7-Eleven and this woman, um, she essentially I profiled me, um, she used a bias statement based upon like her understanding of what it meant to be a young black boy. And, uh, you know, she, basically enacted hate upon me. Um, she, um, she, she enacted violence against me. However, I was 15 and I didn't have the language nor the understanding to unpack the feelings that I was experiencing based upon what she was doing to me. And so one of the things that we do starting at fifth grade is start to teach kids not only about identity, but how to understand the language around identity and the language around injustice and see it in themselves, but also see it in these larger contexts that they play out in like real world settings. And I think uh, that that's powerful. You know, when a, when a child, no matter how old, can name, notice, and acknowledge the things that they are experiencing, um, then they innately have power. Um, and that power gives them the, the, the freedom, uh, the fight to be able to like, to speak out against the things that that uh, they feel are, are wrong or unjust. So, you know, that at least that's that's where we're at. We're in the first year of it. So, you know, much more work to do, but that's where we're at. We're fighting the good fight. We're fighting the good fight. We saw a quote from you, Myron, uh, where you said, um, schools too often limit social justice learning to policy discussions or civics classes. And in turn, students look to protests as a sole method to enact change. The Black Lives Matter movement has really gotten a great amount of attention uh, after the uh, murder of George Floyd. And we're seeing so many protests going on, or we saw so many protests, of course, they've died down a fair amount. But what besides a protest is social justice and how do we, how are you transferring that with the work you do? Yes, yeah, great question. Um, you know, I think this goes back to our um, concept of having our young people see themselves as designers of a more just world. And uh, for us, um, that's our language, you know, like that, that's what we really want our young people to really see, um, see themselves as, because there's so much beauty in seeing yourself in a designer because you acknowledge that there was a system that was, designed to intentionally create inequity. And as a designer, you have the opportunity to redesign it. And we really want our young people to um, acknowledge that protest is a form of design, um, but so, so, so is art, so is music, so is um, utilizing resources within the community to solve problems, to not be dependent upon um like the system to trying to solve problems as well and you know that we see as the like creative um genius um of our young people and you know when we think about different historical movements even if we think about you know the survival programs that the black panther party led you know that's the part that often gets left out of the narrative it's like yes they were about armed self-defense but they legitimately built programs for around like housing and food and healthcare for folks to to do the work and and that's what it means to be a designer to say you know what like let me think about the resources i have and how can i combine those resources up put it in a blender and make something beautiful to to, to solve to get closer towards liberation and again, that's also, in my opinion, a very revolutionary uh, situation to put black and brown children in as actors and agents versus just being recipients and people who are acted upon. Yeah, and I think like, that goes back to your, your earlier point, Rhonda, like as we were, it was really hard for us to bake our, um, our mission statement, like 
I mean, Brandon can tell you we had like a lot of drafts. <laughs> we are designers, so we had like a lot of post-its. And what was hard is like, you know, we had to make this really firm decision and say like, we're actually not gonna put college and career ready in our mission because like the moment you attach that to your mission, you're already starting to potentially go into this narrative where like the purpose of school is to accumulate more wealth um, for your individual self. And I remember, you know, being a teacher and showing students the graph of like, if you get a master's degree, you make this much. And a bachelor's degree, you get this much. And that's not Lies, like, lies, you know, lies. Right. Potentially make that. Right, right. You maybe. Lies. On average, on average. What about your loans? How about yeah, that they, they negative? About the loans. How about right. that they'll, negative that comes later in your income statement <laughs> when it goes out the door? Okay, exactly. but we digress. Exactly. Okay. And so I think we, you know, we wanted to say to our families and to our students, like, we're not trying to get more black and brown folks on top of the pyramid. We want our students to rethink, like, why does the social pyramid and the way it's built um, exist and, like, blow it up and, and design something new? Um, and the other part of our mission is, like, you know, we say the word catalyze um, an integrated community of scholar activists by design and with little intentionality, intentionality. And we could have easily just said social justice school will, but again, that's like that top down, like I'm, I as the educator hold power and knowledge and I'm giving this to you and depositing in you. Whereas like we see our scholar activists, they already designers, you know, they're, they're living and surviving as black and brown kids in America. So clearly they know how to design. We just want to add on to their designer mindset and introduce them to new tools. So that's why we chose the word catalyze as opposed to saying like social justice school will because we're not we're not the saviors of our, our community, our, our kids are. Amazing how um, Paulo Freire just continues to pay dividends. Like he never gets old. It's crazy. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> People will still be reading Pedagogy of the Press, you know, yeah. like 30, 40 years from now. I guess <laughs> right. because the system is so resistant to change because our education system is so integral to our, our economic structure as well. And that's not going anywhere. What do you think the reason is that more schools don't have a similar mission or think outside that box of we're going to make this school so you go to college we're going to make this school so you can make money we're going to make this school versus we want this whole child to be able to thrive in this world as the, the beautiful human that they are one of my other friends that started a school i dream academy she would continuously bring up this point of like just the power of dreaming and having the ability to like dream of what could be. Um, and I say that because, you know, the longer that you find yourself in educational spaces, the harder it can be to dream um, and the easier it is to recreate what already exists um, just because it's familiar. Um, and so I would say like part of the reason I, I, I feel like it, it is hard to, to imagine or to see more schools like social justice is because it's hard to dream or to think of a world where something like this could exist. Um, and the second thing I would say is like, uh, you know, we fundamentally make take take a really strong stance in a way in which uh, schools sometimes try to really be neutral. I mean, I, I think that schools right now to be appealing to a lot of audiences will say all the flashy like buzzwords to we're a Montessori or we do social justice things. But to explicitly, you know, use the name we are the social justice school is a radical stand about who we are and what we represent. Um, and I think that it's, it's uncomfortable to sometimes take positions that are very firm and pronounced in the way that we do. Um, and I think that that's, for, frankly, you know, that's what makes us unique. Um, there is no hiding behind who we are. If you, Myron, you, I, you remember when we were trying to think about our name and we like, well, maybe we'll just be the Anna Cooper. Because, and, and like, we had to sit with ourselves and was like, what is this tension? Like, why are we so scared to say, we know what we're doing. Why don't we want to call, call it that? And, you know, Caroline kind of pushes like, Come on, y'all. And, um, you know, so, yeah, I, I just think that, like, it is it is hard to take a strong stand about what you are and what you believe, especially like in, in environments where schools try to play this neutral role of we're just like the environment that moves people along. And then the second thing is just, it is hard to dream. It is hard to dream about uh, a new space and a new way of doing uh, learning, a new way of doing uh, instruction, uh, because, 
Uh, we've just been inst institutionalized to believe that schooling has to look and be a, a certain way. Um, and this is fundamentally not, it's not true. And there's other schools that are showing that that is not true, uh, but not in the way technically that we are. Um, and then thirdly, I guess I would just say is that, um, uh, sadly, I, you know, I, I think that some people probably just wouldn't think that it's as important. Um, I think that this is the unfortunate thing. It's, you know, when George, everything transpired with George Floyd, like, you know, we, we all know in the black community or in, you know, communities of color, it definitely wasn't the first one, but for whatever reason, like finally it caught America's attention and everybody was outraged and wanted to do something about it. But, you know, America has this notion of amnesia where we quickly forget. And, you know, there's still very much protests going on, but I would say like the movement of social justice to some degree is still has, has, um, has, has dissipated a little bit. Due to COVID, DAP and hugging have been on hiatus for about the last year or so. How are you dealing with that? Something about the hug that I just, I, you know, I'm missing it right now. I, I'm, I'm a toucher. I gotta, I gotta feel you. You know, we gotta be, you know, connected. Um, so I, I am, I am definitely missing that right now. Um, it's a big part of my leadership style. We, we, we always say at SJS that. You know, to be a part of our community is to be seen, known, loved, and then challenged in that order. Um, and so one of the way in which like we always would show staff that they are seen and that they are known is just by the way that we connect with them. Um, you know, probably like two or three of our staff, you know, every time I say, just come here, just like, let me, you know, and then, and then my fellas, you know, I hug my fellas too. Cause when Myron and I, we hugged it, we hug it up, right, Myron? All right, right. yeah, it's a thing. You know, we <laughs> <hugged> <laughs> it. Too, but you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. What are you telling your staff and the other folks that you're spending time with when you dap them specifically? What are you trying to communicate with them? I mean, I think for me, it's just, you know, it's just, it's just love. You know, I try to tell, our staff all the time to like, you know, from an authentic way, like we love you. We have nothing but love and respect for you. So I think we can when we, when we do dap them up, it's like, like this is this is our crew. These are people. We're gonna we're gonna ride for you. Yeah. Yeah, I think the thing that I, I always want to express is like there is nothing that you could do that is gonna change the way that I show up for you. Like I I love you that deeply. Like um when I choose to love you, um it is an intentional act um, and it is something that I will continue to pursue um, because I see you and I see the best in you. Even when the worst in you comes out, I, I see the greatness in you um, and I see who you're trying to become. I see all the ways that you're not there yet, maybe. Um, but I accept that because I accepted those things in me and, and you know, hopefully, you know, my staff accept those things in, my, in myself as well. So you guys are very vulnerable. It sounds yeah, like I, I would say, you know, there's, there's a scale oh, of... Oh, what's the air rubbing his head? Like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> no, no, no. It's a, it's a scale of uh, of one to ten, Rhonda. Uh, we've, we've done several interviews. Bro, you at one. <laughs> and, the, and the word intimacy... They at 12. <laughs> the word intimacy has come up in each one of our interviews in one way or another. And we have had some brothers that are on the one scale. And we've had some brothers, that, you know, the eight to ten scale. And I definitely appreciate y'all. Uh, being on the eight to ten side of the Aaron scale. is not telling the whole story. I can, I can, I can go. I can. <laughs> Aaron is not telling the it's whole. Found, story. Aaron. Talk, talk to you. You know, I, I fluctuate. I go from I can be a, a one one day, and the next day I'm like, whoa, he turned into a, a nine. What's going on? So, what about when Rhonda first suggested intimacy? What was your reaction? Tell that part. I was like, I was like, that's not the guy's not ready for that. <laughs> 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 We're not ready to bring that word. But it has is literally has naturally come up in How all eight times? of our interviews. How many times? In eight interviews, has come up at least six and six of them, right? I'm yeah. just saying. Ne without us saying it. Yeah, I'm so. just saying. The word has, has definitely what, come we, up. That is what I've come to realize in our DAP project uh, journey, that it, it is about intimacy. It is about relationships. It is about closeness. And when we give that DAP, that's what we're doing. We're, we're being, we're, we're having an intimate moment with one another to say, I see you, to say, you know, to show that dignity and pride. We're curious about how you evolved to that point. Would you say you would have been as comfortable five or 10 years ago? Were you just born that way? Or has it been a journey? I imagine that it has been a journey, particularly because education is a space 
predominantly occupied by white females who have a particular style of communication and black men have a different style of communication generally speaking and it can be quickly interpreted. Yeah, it definitely has been a journey. I mean, I think, um, you know, I remember experiencing a bunch of like microaggressions when I was trying to come into that space of being my own authentic space. And so I feel like I suppressed it for, for a long time. Is that out of an act of self-preservation? Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, really, you know, and just being like, okay, well, I think there's also this evolution of like, I remember the first time when I was like, you know what? I'm gonna roll my sleeves up and show like all my tattoos. And it was so Do freeing. see your tattoos. Yeah, yes. I, have, I, have, I, have, I have a lot of them. There's and a I, DC I, flag in there. Oh yeah, there's, yeah. there's, there's, every, there's, there's all, all of this. <laughs> BJ, I saw yours too. Yeah, oh yeah, we out here. Yeah, yeah we out here. I mean, that's <laughs> I'm about to get. I'm about to get mine. Okay, okay, yeah. ready. We, we always more. Ready. I'm about to get more. <laughs> Um, and so just being I never, like, I can never make up my mind what I want. I, I should have touched <laughs> Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> <Don't get touched>. <laughs> <laughs> it definitely takes me a while too, uh, but I, but I love it. And I think, you know, I remember we had like, as we were doing the charter hearing, trying to get our charter approved and we had opportunity to like, as Brandon calls it, like go back and watch our film. And I remember like, seeing how Brandon and I interacted as we were engaging in questions with the charter board. And it was like, we were just having a conversation with ourselves, you know what I mean? And like, and you know, like there were things on the side that no one couldn't see. Like I remember explicitly like Brandon dapping me up when like he thought I did like a really good response. You know what I mean? I think we just come in, I just come to this place of like, you know what? I have to be myself because there's no other way of not being in. What's the risk? that of like me there's more risk of me not being myself than being my authentic self and, and showing up you know yeah i would say for me it's definitely been a progressive thing uh i always say that love it uh love is as, as a courageous act but it's also a contagious act um and uh it took me a long time to be that courageous particularly just because uh in in black culture black masculine like the, this notion of black masculinity is so like nearly nearly defined that there is often little space to be anything other than like hyper masculine you know so you know I, I jokingly say this thing about the hug like I'm a hugger but like for a long time it was like hey bro like right, we right. do this <laughs> and, and and it's like you knew you was real close because then you would bring it in but if you weren't that close it's like somebody was strong on you you know you had to stay at a distance and so um I just kind of looked at the destruction that I caused by enacting like what I believe to be like my black masculinity on other like black boys and how harmful that was. And like, uh, I think it was like my third year teaching and I just like made a conscious effort to like do something different. And uh, I don't know what I was watching, but it, it was something that was just like, you know, you just like, just, just hug them, just hug them. And so literally, uh, you know, I walked around for like the next week and like, you know, I would, you know, put my arm around like, I was like, hey boy, I love you. And he, what? what? No, it's like, look, look, I love you. Like, you know, I, and when I say I love you, it means I just see everything in you. I see the potential in you. I see the greatness in you. I see you and I see all that you're not still and I love you anyway. And like, just like that. And, you know, some people responded to it. Some people didn't. Um, there's one particular young man and like, you know, it, I could tell like the light went on in his lives, like the, the closeness of that connection and just me putting my arm around him and embracing him and telling him like, I love you. Like that was the courageous act, but then it was also contagious because like he who was a, like more uh, aggressive yet man became softer. And I would see different sides of them were more sensitive and uh, it, was liber it was liberating for him. And I know it was liberating for me. Um, and so I just fundamentally believe that and I chose when I when I you know took on this leadership position that like I was just going to be radi radically authentically myself, and that means unapologetically loving to the people that I encounter. And it's hard as hell some days. I'll be honest, because sometimes people do stuff that hurts, right? And when people yeah. do things that hurt, your natural things like okay, I'm going to close back up because this is not a safe space to uh, to to show up. Um, but those are spaces often that need love the most. So um you know just continue to be uh courageous so i can spread that spread that good love with, with other people yeah i noticed in a t-shirt that you were wearing in one of the videos that said christian or said to the effect of christian yeah perfect now yeah 
So if we add that element of a Christian belief to masculinity, how does your faith influence how you show up as a black man? Yeah, I mean, I think that's every, it's everything. Um, you know, my faith uh, start, which started really around that time. I grew up in the church, but I don't think I understood what it really meant to be a Christian. Um, as I started to walk as an adult male with other Christian brothers that were really walking out this notion of like radical love of like, you know, guys, I would go to this thing called, uh, we would have small groups and guys just be sharing it all. And I just, <laughs> 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 lean back. Right. And I'm just like, yo, what, what type of group is this? Um, but I also like watched like people get free of burdens that they carried for so long um, that they just felt like they, they had been judged by, that they could not, they had to carry in silence. Um, and as they shared those things and they started to get more truth, um, and, a, and a new notion about what it meant to be, you know, uh, a believer, a Christian, uh, you know, I just saw a different side of them. And so, uh, you know, that's, that's really where my, trans, my transformation started. That's where my understanding of love not being a feeling, but being an action and a choice uh, really derived from. Um, and, and uh, you know, since I, since I really started my journey with Christ and, um, and walking with the Lord, like, it's uh it's radically transformed my life and uh you know it's, it's even funny uh Myron if you don't mind like me sharing like just like the notion of our relationship and coming together as like believers and you know and even grappling sometimes you know there's you know even as you walk the walk like there's still times where you just like you know because Yo, a lot Jesus. of other brothers like right. this white Jesus this white Jesus yeah. safe for you. like you know, this Bible <laughs> <laughs> you know so yeah yeah. Yeah. Okay, now we're definitely going to take it light. What music is giving you life? Music or art that is giving you life? Or a movie? Something yeah, that you can the, engage what's in. What's heavy rotation? Or a show that's giving you life? Let me see. Heavy rotation. Let me look at title real quick. <laughs> <laughs> Man, so I actually stumbled on, I have an Apple playlist and I stumbled on a playlist uh, that I found on Apple. Um, my, my, my pops was like a real, he was heavy and he has a whole bunch of vinyls still like at the house. Clearly we don't use them, but he has them. Um, and so he used to play music all the time. And so uh, he, he, you know, he loved like OJ's Whispers. Um, he loved Teddy, uh, you know, and so it literally, it's, 82 songs and I mean you want to talk about 80s best hits mm. um and so I can't name just like one song I don't know if there's one song but the playlist itself has like really been giving me life and like you know uh yep it's been giving me so much life I really appreciate it um and then um uh this is more current but Jasmine Sullivan has a song and I, I don't know why it's escaping me right now but I, I only like it because my kids really like it like mm. I think it's called let it burn let it burn uh, and yeah, yeah. my son would be he'd be like, Daddy, play that Let It Burn. And I, <laughs> I, you know, selfishly, I, I like the song just because, you know, he likes it. And my daughter would be like, Let It Burn. And, you know, she says it too. So that, that's where I'm going right now. Your kids sound hilarious. <laughs> so how will the education landscape look different in five years because of the work that you're doing at the social justice school? Well, one hope that we have, I mean, we really do believe in the power of like um, the makerspace education. And we hope that there will be more makerspaces that are um, rooted in social justice um, as, you know, the landscape changes. Um, we also hope that schools will hold the mirror up to themselves and ask themselves the hard question of like, you know, what does it really mean to be an anti-racist organization? Um, and how do we critically reflect on our own policies and practices? Not because we worried about, you know, data getting leaked or making the news for doing something, but more about like, we really want to hold ourselves to these values um, and, and having leaders um, do that kind of work. And I think, Lastly, we envision that the charter landscape or the, the education sector is really a place where um, school leaders see power and teachers see power to students and students have a real 
place, not only where they can advocate, but actually see that advocacy turn into policy changes um, and the type of schools that they want um, and parents also getting that power as well. That's our episode for this week. Sincere thank you to Myron and Brandon for an enlightening conversation and raising our consciousness about being change agents. We are confident that they will realize their vision and would love to have them back to hear all about it. Please visit the Social Justice School online at thesocialjusticeschool.org to learn more about what they do and to support them. And visit the DAP Project online to subscribe to our newsletter and to read the show notes. You can like and subscribe to The DAP Project on Apple Podcasts. Speaking of reading, The DAP Project is reading The Miseducation of the Negro by Carter G. Woodson. Buy it at your local independent bookstore, preferably Black-owned, and join us on Instagram Live on Sunday, February 28th, for our first DAP Project book talk. The DAP Project has a book club, TDPB Reading. Join us. On the socials, I tweet randomnalia at educate underscore Rhonda, post pics of my auntie life on Insta at Rhonda Henderson, and talk books, books, and more books at Ruby Reads Chocolate City, also on the gram. Aaron Harvey, are you on the socials? Yes. Contact me at Aaron.Stallworth on IG. And of course, the DEP project on IG. The DEP dot project. Thanks for rocking with us this week. (laughs) No, for real though. Resistance is a highway with many lanes and I hope you find yours. Take care, folks.